0: Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that is slow walking through Dante's masterwork, comedy. We are in the third canto of Purgatorio. We're at a short passage, just 12 lines, lines 67 through 78. I'm going to keep this short in the passage here and what we deal with inside of Dante's text because I want to bring up a separate issue, a literary issue with you. It may seem a little literary esoteria, but at the same time, I think it's important for us to talk this through. And that is how do you make a character? And what is the difference between the modern notion of a character and the medieval notion of a character? We'll get to that at the end of the podcast. But before that, let's talk about the passage. This is my English language translation of purgatorio canto 3 line 67 through 78 you can find it on my website MarkScarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com same website you can there read it along print it off you can make notes all the things i always tell you you can do you can still do them right there on my website short passage as i said at this point Dante and Virgil are trying desperately to figure out a way up the unbelievably steep wall that is the initial ascent up Mount Purgatory, and they have seen a group of people far off coming very slowly. Well, Dante saw them and then relayed that information to Virgil, and Virgil seemed to get back on familiar ground as the guide, or did he? Even after we'd gone a thousand paces, these people were still a long ways off, as far as a skilled arm could have hurled a stone. That's when they all pressed themselves tight against the hard wall of the steep cliff. They stood still and clumped together as people halt to watch out when they're in doubt. Oh, well-finished spirits, Virgil began, oh, those already among the elect, for the sake of that peace for which I believe you are all waiting, tell us where the mountain slopes so that it's possible to go up it, for lost time irritates most the ones who know the most. We're going to stop there with virgil's aphorism his pithy little phrase we'll talk a lot about that i want to talk about the tone and the problems of interpretation in this passage all before we get to the larger issue of how do you build a character in the modern world versus how do you build a character in the medieval world let's start with the first six lines even after we'd gone a thousand paces these people were still a long ways off i want to tell you that there is a lot of talk and commentary about how far a thousand paces are. I'm laughing because it just seems like one of those things that commentators love to get all bound up in. Oh, you have people arguing it's a mile. You have other people arguing it's a half a mile. It's a whole big, huge debate. I don't know. Why don't we just take it that they walked a thousand paces and maybe that's not even literal. we went went a long ways. The people are coming so slowly that they're still a long way off as far as a skilled arm could have hurled a stone. So... You know, if you're talking a good thrower here, think a, think a pitcher in the major leagues. So <laughs> how far could that arm hurl a stone? These people are still a long ways away. Yet at this moment, they press themselves tight against the hard wall, of the steep cliff. They stood still and clumped together as people halt to watch out when they're in doubt. This is a curious little bit, and we have to ask why. The usual explanation given here for why are they suddenly afraid is that everyone moves right on Mount Purgatory. Now, we don't know that yet. We will come to know that, but we don't know that yet. So it's a little curious. If this is the reason they halt, in other words, everyone always moves right, They see Dante and Virgil. We talked about this in the last episode of the podcast. Dante and Virgil may still be moving to the left. If that's so, then they're kind of suddenly freaked out by, oh my gosh, who are these people going the wrong way on purgatory? Who are these people walking uh, backwards? Who are these people walking clockwise when, in fact, on purgatory, everybody's going to go counterclockwise? If that's the explanation and it is the standard explanation among commentators, then you have to have read a lot farther into purgatory to know that. There's no explanation yet of directionality of motion. So that would seem that Dante is then putting this problem here, their motivation, without an explanation and expecting you to come back. Back to it in a reread of Purgatorio. And indeed, that is certainly within the scope of Dante's art. But could there be another reason here? Maybe it is that we will have to discover that reason in the next few passages. There may be a reason for their hesitation that is not just the directional movement of the pilgrim Dante and Virgil versus their directional movement. I told you last time that the idea that Dante and Virgil are always still here moving in the hellish direction to the left is common in commentary, but I think it's a little bit of a, what I want to say, a little murky interpretation of what's happened in the passage. Thus, building on that to me, unsteady foundation, then most commentators say these guys are all afraid because they see two souls moving in the wrong direction at this point. But again... That's not spelled out in the text, and I actually think there may be a more readily available interpretation lying only a few lines ahead of us. Sorry, not in this passage. I don't mean to put it off until the next episode, but I have to. I have to give you the standard reading and then say there may be a secondary reading ahead. All right, let's go on in the passage. Virgil says, Oh well-finished spirits, benfiniti, oh those already among the elect. For the sake of that peace for which I believe you're all waiting, tell us where the mountain slopes so that it's possible to go up it. Virgil is engaging in a lot of flattery here. He is doing what he has done before in Inferno occasionally he has, flattered people in order to get something out of them. But in Purgatorio, we would have to say that that flattery has a different tone to it, particularly now that Virgil has been put in his place several times and has actually hung his head in distress. He begins, oh, well-finished spirit, Benfiniti. Are they? These guys are... <laughs> on the bottom of Mount Purgatory. It's true. They're in the afterlife of the redeemed. But are they well finished? Have they finished? I don't think so. Perhaps I'm quibbling on a line here that shouldn't be quibbled. (laughs) Perhaps I'm making a big deal out of nothing here, but it always strikes me that this flattery is a little off. Well finished. No, 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 no. These guys have a giant climb ahead of them, as do Virgil and the Pilgrim this flattery rings a little different for me, and then it really rings different in the last line of the passage. Virgil ends his flattery with this phrase, for lost time irritates or displeases most the ones who know the most. What in the world does that mean? I have puzzled that line out for years, and I (laughs) I have to tell you, it's a head-scratcher. I don't know what would motivate Virgil to speak like this, unless Virgil's thinking back to Cato. And so now he knows about Cato's reprimand, so now he knows they're not supposed to lose time. But this would make no sense to the souls they're approaching. This is all Virgilian emotional (laughs) landscape. That's not all you can possibly know when have we ever seen virgil speak in aphorisms in pithy sayings this line always strikes me as unbelievable overreach on Virgil's part, that he is attempting to appear incredibly wise in front of redeemed spirits. Now, these guys are at the very bottom of Mount Purgatory, and we'll find out why in episodes ahead. But still, he's trying to seem very, oh, look at me, I'm a sage. (laughs) A philosopher so let me lay this one on you which will make no sense to you because you you don't know why i'm saying this and this has to do with my getting reprimanded maybe but uh anyway here's the here's the saying it's just one of those moments in which i think virgil's character is being revealed in an ironic way i think that virgil is coming in for a bit of a drubbing again here he's overreaching in his flattery Benfiniti, well finished, no way, and overreaching with this aphorism, which in the end would mean nothing to these souls. What in the world are you saying, old man? Furthermore, the aphorism itself is so pithy, so trite, so contorted, that it itself doesn't quite mean anything. I'm sorry, lost time irritates most the ones who know the most? No, not really. I know some people who know a lot about I don't know, quantum physics, or who know a lot about cardiology, and let me say that they waste time. So I don't think that that's a a truth of the matter. I've met a lot of literary scholars who have an incredible depth of field knowledge of 19th century history and culture. I don't think that they are somehow not guilty of wasting time. I think they do waste time. They sit around their office on social media, so... This whole aphorism at the end, it seems to bear on Virgil's personal experience. It seems to bear, not at all, on the experience of these people who are coming very slowly because they're clearly wasting time. They're walking so slowly. Is Virgil trying to reprimand them then in the spirit that Cato has reprimanded him? If that's the case, this is just going to land flat because they're doing what they have to do, walking around the bottom of Mount Purgatory. All I'm saying is that I think this aphorism is a curious moment in the characterization of Virgil, which leads us out to the problem of building a character in the modern world and the medieval world. There are ways in which modern characters in storytelling are reminiscent of medieval characters, or we could put it the other way, medieval characters show the early signs of modern character development. And I'd like to go through three particular ways that medieval characters sometimes indicate what we now take for granted in modern novel or storytelling or narrative or film or plot mechanisms. One way is backstory. And medieval characters sometimes have a backstory, but it is not a given. In the modern world, the notion of a backstory becomes central to building a character. Now, we do have some backstory here. We have Virgil and Eryktho and Virgil's first journey to the bottom of Inferno. But we are distinctly lacking the exact specifics of Dante the Pilgrim's backstory. We still don't exactly know and are having to intuit a backstory. And we are such modern readers that I guarantee you we are all, me too, looking for the backstory because it's how we read character now. We look for the past to bring meaning to the present. We live, to put it bluntly, post Freud. And post Freud, we're going to say that the past somehow caused causes behaviors in the present and thus characters must have a backstory. This is a mm, either or a yes or no in medieval characterization. There are lots of characters in medieval lit that don't have backstories. For example, um, Chaucer's second nun in the Canterbury tale. Uh, The prioress is on the, uh, the journey to Canterbury with the other pilgrims. She has nuns with her and a priest with her, and one of her sub-nuns tells a tale, a saint's legend. Well, that second nun doesn't really have a backstory. People have tried desperately to use the second nun's tale as some kind of commentary on her boss, the Prioress, but I don't know that that fully holds together. And in fact, some of the pilgrims' backstories in the Canterbury Tales don't quite fit the tales that they tell. The Wife of Bath is the clear one here. The Wife of Bath has a giant backstory, but the tale she tells is a pretty standard morality fable, which doesn't seem to fit this very amoral, not even immoral, amoral, multiple times married woman who is the Wife of bath backstory is a funky thing we now take it for granted and we look for it we look for it to explain characters and sometimes when we do this in the medieval text it's warranted Virgil Anaric though and sometimes when we do it we're actually overreaching what a medieval character is we now expect ambient texture to be part of a character's development in a story, a film, a plot. If let's say you and I were in a writing class together and you were taking a writing class from me and you were writing and let's say you were starting your novel, one of the things I would have you do is I would have you completely flesh out your main character. I would ask you a series of questions and these will probably never occur in your novel. But I want to know, for example, how does your main character wash his or her clothes does he let them pile up until they just almost overwhelm his bedroom before he ever does the wash or does she uh somehow throw them all into the washing machine together so everything on hot water and everything comes out pink does he ritually do it every Saturday that's the day he does his wash does she separate colors so obsessively that she does these little tiny loads like seven little tiny loads of a single person's wash how does your character drive to work is your character always late is your character racing to work does your character completely obey the speed limits is your character always going to work but then diverted like oh god I gotta stop at the store and my milk or chocolate chips or, I-, I don't know? You know is your character 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 easily diverted? Does your character stop for junk food on the way to work? Does your character bring his or her own lunch to work? None of this may ever appear in your novel. But it's all gonna build this ambient texture. In medieval characterization This ambient texture is less explicit. We now expect this kind of detail work from a character in a novel. But in medieval writing, it's all much less explicit. For example, Virgil's distress when he hangs his head over Aristotle and Plato. Or let's go back to Inferno. Dante suddenly having a cord or a belt on before they call Garyon. What happens in medieval characterization is the ambient texture seems to abrupt or interrupt the text it's not as if if you wrote Dante now as a pilgrim you'd have him have that belt on from the beginning and by the time they get to Gary he'd fuss with it he'd mess with it around Francesca after he faints you know he'd straighten his belt when he gets back up or what you build toward using that belt you'll notice that medieval Ambient texture tends to be plateaus and then jumps and plateaus and then jumps. It's a different, uh, what do I want to say, tempo, a different rhythm than modern texture in modern characterization. And sometimes we can be very shocked, as in this passage, when Virgil drops this aphorism, something that I don't know that Virgil really has ever done before. We expect characters' behaviors to be causal in some way or to be so absurd as to be non-causal. And that is simply a reflection of the standard notion of causal behavior. And medieval characters... This is where they will hit very hard close to us. That is, some action will cause a character to react, the Francesca and Dante, or Virgil and the demons in, with the baraters in their Malabolgia, or Virgil with Ulysses. We have a kind of causal interaction amongst characters to move the plot forward. This is something that medieval narrative establishes and we now hold it sacred medieval characterization has established all of these things a backstory ambient texture causal connections but it's not as forward in the text as it is in modern text but there are a few things that medieval characters have that modern characters do not have anymore medieval characters have always sitting right behind them, an allegorical intent. That moment when Virgil looks down and Dante looks up and sees the souls coming slowly toward them— there is so much allegory sitting right there behind the two figures this is a constant concern in medieval characterization now i want to tell you that in the modern world this is still a concern believe it or not if you read middlemarch the problem with dorothea brooke and it's a problem that Elliot can't solve is that dorothea brooke the lead character in middlemarch both is an individual and represents a whole class of women and thus she is in a sense an allegory for a woman who has great desires to make an impact on the world but lives in such a rural backwater place that all her efforts come to naught and she represents this kind of tragedy of the very smart but forgotten woman who has no chance to make any difference in the world and Elliot rides this uncomfortable line between Dorothea being an individual with her own motivations and her own problems and her own marriage faults and being an allegory for something. In the modern world, we have suppressed allegory as a characterization because we're uncomfortable with it, but it's always there. Quentin Compson in The Sound and the Fury is representative of a certain kind of Southern intellectual who goes to Harvard and ultimately kills himself, who goes to Harvard and cannot make it. The, The characters in The Great Gatsby, they have allegorical intent behind them. The characters in The Sun Also Rises, the characters in *Buddenbrooks*. certainly the characters in Death in Venice, have a kind of allegorical aura around them, and yet they're fully individuated because we're uncomfortable with that allegorical intent. Medieval writers are never uncomfortable with that allegorical intent and are always pushing it. This is why we get so many people saying Virgil is the allegory of reason I would argue that one of the ways that Dante is a genius is Virgil is an allegory of a lot of things he's an allegory yes of human reason and human wisdom He's also an allegory of the failed father figure, the father figure who is imperfect and not like the ultimate father figure in God. There is a lot of allegorical intent behind Virgil, just as there is behind the pilgrim. And Dante is constantly playing with this. And it's easy sometimes for us to slip into this idea that these are individuated characters, when in fact... Dante is always thinking about them as what they represent. Medieval characters are also developed in a very specific way, and let me explain this. They're developed through topoi, and we've talked about this a little before, but let me say it again. Topos is Greek for place, and topoi is a literary convention in which you take certain set pieces, as if they're pieces of geography, and you sew them together to create a character. So you have the confessio-topos, that is the topos of I confess that I did wrong, and here's all the things I did wrong. You have a discovery topos in medieval literature, which is often about discovering a secret, particularly in a chest or buried somewhere and finding it and having it opened up and f- and finding out what your true purpose is we could see part of this discovery or treasure topas with Brunetto Latini and in Inferno. Topoi get assembled in various ways the romantic chivalric Topoi of love with Francesca as well as the Confessio, the I Confess topas with Francesca kind of weaving together to create her story. Medieval writers are using established set pieces and weaving them together to create character. And thus, we see texture here. We see, to use the fancy modern word, voicing. That is, Virgil appears to speak in different voices, or the text seems to have different angles or points of view on Virgil. And this is because we are existing in various topoi. And the topos we're existing in here in Purgatorio at this moment is the lost pilgrim, the pilgrim who is trying to get somewhere and doesn't fully know the way. And in this case, has a guide who doesn't really know the way. This is a very familiar fairy tale, topos. Think of Red Riding Hood in the woods, the lost way and the dangers of the lost way. And in this case, even the lost guide, which is a very familiar medieval topos the lost or failing guide who can't get you somewhere, which is always generally related to pilgrimage or crusade or going to the Holy Land or the Levant in some way. And these stories are being woven by Dante Into a single narrative So we feel not the Ambient texture that modern characters Feel which is how do you do your wash How do you go to work what do you eat For lunch all that ambient texture That develops a character is a character Obsessive compulsive is a character um, A drunk is a Character obsessed with his Own failures is a character Somehow a, a, a Woman who is trying to make It in a man's world you know we have All this ambient texture around our characters in modern novels or modern plays or modern films dante's instead using multiple topoi in order to build texture into the text the topas of the incarnation the topas of the resurrection the topas of the failed god the topas of the confession the topas. of of the uh, uh, not-quite-good-enough person. This is a very big topos when you read Chaucer. The person who strives but doesn't have the internal fortitude to actually get there. Uh, Really important for Troilus and Cressida, really important for some of the Canterbury Tales to see this idea that effort doesn't match outcome or effort can't get you to the outcome that you desire. Again, set pieces, set moral fabric pieces that get woven together. And now in the modern world, we see that as texture. Dante sees that more as rhetoric. Let's go back and read two passages all the way back to line 46 and up through this current passage, that is then through line 78. I think now we're ready to see it as a whole that leads us to this moment of Virgil's strange aphorism. In the meantime, we'd come to the foot the mountain, where we found a cliff so steep that the buffest legs wouldn't have been able to get up it. Consider that desolate terrain between Larici and Turbia. That pile of ruin is little more than a wide and easy staircase compared to this spot. Okay, who could know on which hand there's a less steep climb, my master Virgil said as he halted his steps. Where's the spot someone without wings can climb?' Standing there with his gaze lowered, he was racking his brain about the road ahead. I was looking up, all around the rocks, when there appeared to me on the left a group of human souls who were indeed moving their feet toward us, although it didn't seem they were actually doing that, given how slowly they came on. Master, I said, lift up your eyes. Behold, over there are some who might give us some guidance, if you aren't able to noodle out any on your own. So he looked over there, and with a sigh of relief said— Let's go on toward them, for they're coming along so slowly. Firm up your hopes, my sweet son. Even after we'd gone a thousand paces, these people were still a long ways off, as far as a skilled arm could have hurled us down. That's when they all pressed themselves tight against the hard wall of the steep cliff. They stood still and clumped together as people halt to watch out when they're in doubt. Oh, well-finished spirits, Virgil began, oh, those already among the elect, for the sake of that peace for which I believe you all are waiting, tell us where the mountain slopes so that it's possible to go up it. For lost time irritates most the ones who know the most. There's a long way away to talk about characterization. But I just thought it was really important since we're talking so much about the funkiness of Virgil in these passages. So I thought it was important to do a small passage here and then kind of lead out into a larger discussion. I'm sorry if that got really literary. Please forgive me for that. I promise not to be quite so literary all the time. But it was just important for you to see why we may be experiencing the poem slightly differently Than even we could say Dante intended it, although, of course, we will never know fully what Dante intended. We're experiencing it through our own rubric of how characters work. Subscribe to this podcast, rate it, do all those things you have to do to make the podcast work. It's unsupported except by you. Thanks for doing that. Thanks for contacting me in various social media feeds on Facebook and the Walking With Dante group through Instagram DMs I must admit I'm not on Twitter very much anymore because of problems at Twitter but I am still vaguely there I'm certainly on TikTok Oh, the kids let me on you can find me in lots of different places I'd love to connect with you there otherwise come back next time because we gotta find out who these people are who are moving so slowly they are actually the fulcrum on which all of Kanto 3 turns I'm Mark Scarborough I'll see you then